0: Hello and welcome to the Centre for European Reform podcast. I'm Rosie Georgie, the CER's Media Coordinator, and today our experts are going to be answering the questions that you, our listeners, have written in with. Today we'll be talking trade with China, European and global tax reform, and the EU's unfinished banking union. With me today I have my colleagues Ian Bond, Director of Foreign Policy, Zach Myers, Senior Research Fellow, and John Springford, Deputy Director of the CER. So let's begin by considering the challenges ahead for Europe in managing its relationship with China. Putin's invasion of Ukraine has shown the risk of complacency and dependence for Europe in having an imbalanced trading relationship with a nation whose economic and political values are different to its own. Since the war began, we've seen Europe's reliance on Russian oil and gas come home to roost. Now, if we turn to China, Europe's already aware of a growing issue it has there too, calling it a systemic rival, partner, and economic competitor, and it won't want to leave it late this time. We've recently seen Beijing carry out a series of military exercises around Taiwan, which China sees as part of its territory. So the idea of an invasion there wouldn't be an outlandish one, but the threat of China on Taiwan is just one challenge affecting Europe's relationship with Beijing. And with this, I'll bring you in to shed some more light on this, Ian. Before we get to our listener's question, could you please explain a bit more about Europe's motivations for cutting back its dependence on Beijing and what the key vulnerabilities are in the relationship?
2: Thanks, Rosie. Well, China doesn't threaten Europe in the direct military way that Russia does, Uh, but it does create policy challenges that are hard to solve. Uh, and as, he, as you pointed out in your introduction, in 2019, the EU described China as simultaneously a partner, a competitor and a systemic rival. And what's become clear since then is that for the Chinese Communist Party, the systemic rivalry is the most important driver in the relationship. Now, I, I'd say that China's increasingly close relationship with Russia is, is one sign of that. Um, But we're also looking at China's control of crucial raw materials and its role in supply chains for goods that Europe and the rest of the world rely on. And that's particularly um, important when we're talking about things that will be vital in the green and digital transitions on which, in a sense, Europe's future prosperity is going to depend. So, you know, to take a couple of examples, China produces something between half and 3 quarters of the world's lithium uh, which is vital for batteries and seven of the world's top 10 solar panel manufacturers are chinese firms so you know there is a degree of dependency and that gives china a certain leverage and europe's also concerned about china's ambitions for acquiring the kind of technologies that still give europe an economic edge in some some areas um and Sometimes that's by legitimate means, such as acquiring European companies. Sometimes it's by theft of European intellectual property.
0: Okay, thank you very much, Ian. So on to Reinhardt from Germany's question. What do you think would be a realistic roadmap for reducing European dependency on the People's Republic of China over the next five years?
2: Well, thanks, Reinhardt. It's an excellent question. Uh, And I don't know how far we can get in five years, but it's important to get started. In fact, you could say we should have got started started some time ago. So there are some defensive steps that Europe should take. And there are some, I mean, I, I, I won't use the term offensive, but at any rate, some proactive steps that Europe should take. So defensively, Uh, Europe needs to make sure that it has the right tools to protect its intellectual property. It absolutely shouldn't become dependent on China as a result of China controlling technologies that were originally developed in Europe. So European countries need to scrutinize Chinese investments in European tech firms. And there's already an EU regulation to, um, to oblige them to do that. But I think there are ways in which that could be strengthened. Uh, but they also need to look at technology transfer when European firms are investing in China. China often tries to force European firms to transfer some of their technology to Chinese partners, um, and you know that that then helps China more than it helps Europe. And I think it's also very important that European countries, European governments, do more to ensure that their businesses and even their universities are taking cyber security and counter-espionage measures more seriously. And for the European Commission, they need to keep an eye on whether Chinese companies are taking advantage of access to EU-funded research. That's definitely something which has been an issue in the past, where um, by setting up a subsidiary in Europe, a Chinese company is able to benefit from EU funding for research, which then again basically belongs to China in the future. So that's the defensive side. And then the proactive side is the EU needs to work with like-minded states to find alternative sources of supply for key minerals, for electronic components, not necessarily setting up chip factories in Europe ourselves, but trying to ensure that there is some diversity and some resilience in our supply chains. Uh, you know, that's an objective which the EU shares with the US, the UK, with Asian partners like Japan and South Korea. And I think it's, you know, somebody somebody's talked about friend-shoring, so not not moving business from China to the EU necessarily, but moving it to countries that, you know, basically share our values, share our, our uh, world view. Now, you know, my colleagues from the economics team should probably cover their ears at this point, but it does seem to me that Western governments and the European Union will probably have to subsidise a certain level of inefficiency to provide that sort of resilience. That might mean having more suppliers than are strictly necessary for some commodities or some components, or holding bigger inventories of critical raw materials and components than we've needed to in the past in the interests of reducing Europe's vulnerability to Chinese leverage in a, in a conflict or a confrontation. And I think also Europe needs to step up its investment in research and in innovation, and then to make sure that the fruits of that investment are diffused across European economies, which doesn't always happen at the moment. I, I don't think it's realistic or, or even desirable to decouple completely from one of the world's largest economies and a market of well over a billion people. I mean, I think European businesses are always going to want to do business with China, and quite right so they should. But I, I do think, and I suspect that Reinhardt would agree with this, that it's vital to ensure that the relationship between Europe and China is a relationship of of equals, uh, not one in which Beijing has the vast majority of the leverage and Brussels has very little.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you Ian for painting that nuanced picture. Um, So Zach, let me turn to you while we're talking roadmaps and we can speak about tax and what the EU's plans are in the way of reforms there. Lennart from Finland first asked a big question how large would you say the yearly tax losses are in the EU? So that's in terms of tax loss through tax evasion, personal tax fraud, corporate tax, and value-added tax in member states.
1: Thanks, Rosie. That is a, uh, a huge question, and one that's quite difficult to answer for obvious reasons. There's been quite a lot of attempts made in the past couple of years to estimate um, how much is lost either through tax evasion which is uh, when individuals or companies are actively breaching tax laws, and also through aggressive tax practices. And this refers to cases where taxpayers are complying with the law, but they're using particular structures to pay what we would probably consider as someone on the street to be an unfair amount of tax. And so obviously the estimates are going to be quite rough, but they are also quite huge. So in terms of VAT or value added tax, uh, the EU last estimated that member states lost $134 billion in VAT revenues just in 2019. And that sounds like a huge number, but it's actually part of a steady improvement over the last few, few years, um, which is quite shocking. It's, you know, in one year, about the size of the entire COVID recovery fund. What I noticed looking through the figures here is that a lot of it is focused in just a small number of countries. In particular, Italy um, is responsible for about 30 billion euros of that total amount, which is the highest, like quite a significant way, and interesting given that um, you know Italy is a, a smaller economy than, say, Germany or the UK, who are both quite a lot smaller. Uh, but between Italy, Germany, and the UK, are responsible for more than half of that gap. So it's uh, kind of a, a big figure, but quite concentrated on personal tax fraud. Um, the latest figures that I've been able to find are from 2016. So they're a few years old now, but that was an estimate of 46 billion euros a year being lost in um, kind of individual income tax fraud. And uh, there are other estimates that I've also seen which are quite significantly higher, including an estimate of 124 billion in 2018. And so then we come to corporate tax, which is surprisingly quite a smaller, um, quite a smaller figure uh, with estimates of around 35 to 70 billion in corporate tax avoidance each year. And a a large uh, amount of that is actually corporate profit shifting, um, which is essentially where multinationals can shift some of their assets in particular intangible assets. So things like intellectual property, and they can move those into low tax countries, which then looks like they're booking a lot of their profits in these countries that, um, where they would need to pay a relatively low amount of tax, even though they might be making most of their sales and having all of their customers in higher tax locations. So comparing those three categories of tax, you can see corporate tax is not really the highest amount of um, tax losses, not by a long way, but it has been receiving quite a lot of attention recently. And that's because of a few factors. Um, Firstly, corporate tax for each EU member state and and generally for countries around the world is only a small part of the overall tax take for each country. And so globally, it's around 15% of the average tax take actually in many of the EU's largest member states it's significantly less than that you know somewhere around seven to eight percent of the total tax take so actually corporate tax losses even though the ultimate amounts are are not high compared to other types of tax it does look like the the proportionate losses that are being suffered are are quite high Uh, secondly there's clearly an ethical dimension about well-resourced multinationals not paying the right amount of tax that they should and I think that's particularly a concern you know, if, if you were running a small or medium-sized business in Europe and you were seeing multinationals who, because of their presence in lots of different jurisdictions around the world, are able to shift profits around. You know, you can see that that creates a, an unfair playing field and distorts competition. And so, so it's kind of a, a broader economic concern. And thirdly, there's a lot that's already happening to improve um, compliance rates in terms of that and, and personal tax compliance. A lot of that is quite boring it's you know about information sharing between jurisdictions and improving systems to detect non-compliance and also making sure that people are paying for things electronically rather than using cash but a lot of the issues with the amount of corporate tax that's being paid are really quite deeply embedded in the system you know almost all big multinationals are using the same types of tactics and strategies they owe a duty to their shareholders to be as profitable as they can and so many of them probably feel obliged to take advantage of these structures. And so it's it's an issue that really does require high-level political action.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, well, so if we stick with corporate tax in particular, it's widely accepted that, as you touched upon, the international corporate tax system, which was designed over a century ago, is in need of a revamp. So last October, 136 countries signed up to the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development's global tax deal, which would set a global minimum corporate tax and make the largest multinationals pay more tax in the countries where they make their sales. So the EU has also announced its own new framework for corporate income tax, which would incorporate and build upon the OECD's proposal. Could you tell us how both these plans are going at the moment? Um, are there any EU member states standing in the way of the reforms?
1: Yeah, a, a great question. and. Uh... As you could tell um, from the background you provided, Rosie, if you're interested in international tax, and I am confident that's probably only a minority of people, but it is actually quite an exciting time, given the pace of change recently. So in the past, a lot of EU member states have been perceived as part of the problem of um, international corporate tax avoidance. And, you know, to name countries, you can think of Ireland, Luxembourg and the Netherlands as examples of countries that have you know, really tried to attract businesses based on very low tax rates. And the Commission has spent many years trying to tackle those countries' tolerance for aggressive tax practices. And the main problem here has been this need for unanimity on tax measures. So essentially you need every EU member state to agree to a new EU law on tax um, to be implemented before it can be passed. And that meant that these low-tax countries could easily veto any changes that they didn't like. And so a few things have been changing in that respect. So firstly, there's been growing acceptance in many of these low-tax countries that it's not a sustainable long-term business model. And there's been plenty of leaks in recent years, which have kind of shown exactly how companies are taking advantage of the tax models in these countries and and some of the effects of allowing them to do that. Um, Secondly, the EU has found a few ways around the unanimity requirement. And so, for example, uh, it can increase transparency of tax without needing unanimity, uh, just using a, a qualified majority of member states. And so, for example, the EU is about to require large multinationals to publish how much tax they pay in each EU member state and also in particular types of tax havens. And so this is going to further publicise the, the degree to which EU countries might be facilitating Um, the payment of low tax rates. And it's also kind of leading to this uh, situation where governments are starting to feel shamed about it. Um, The other really important development is that for a few years now, there's been this proposal on the table at an international level to have a minimum corporate tax rate. And that was originally proposed by France and, and Germany, but it didn't get a lot of traction until President Biden was elected in the US. And so the US wants to increase its domestic corporate tax rate without uh, losing its international competitiveness. And the ideal way to do that is to uh, do what France and Germany have been proposing for a good number of years now, which is to uh, set out some sort of system so that there's a, a flaw on the amount of corporate tax that other countries uh, are allowed to, to levy. And so in trying to get this agreed internationally, the US has put enormous pressure on various countries who were previously opposed to reforms to get behind the deal. And that includes countries like Ireland, who have been kind of the blockers in the EU. Now, it, it's not all clear sailing. Implementing the OECD deal, uh, which is that deal that, that you mentioned before, Rosie, um, it will still need unanimity from EU member states if it's to proceed kind of without raising any legal complications or risks. And Poland and Hungary have been causing a great deal of problems in that regard. So first we had Poland, who said it was upset about the two different parts of the deal not going ahead at the same time. Um, those two different parts are firstly reallocating tax revenue between different countries. So this is about making sure that um, you know profits are booked where, or at least some profits are booked in the country where a company is making sales to customers rather than in some country where it's moved its intellectual property. And the second part is about imposing this minimum rate of tax so that even if um, you know, a small uh, tax haven sets a low rate of tax, other countries will be able to, um, to recover the difference between that low tax rate and the, the, global, um, the global floor. So, so Poland was raising all of these complications about you know, why is not all of this deal proceeding at the same pace? But in reality, it seems to me and to a lot of other commentators that the real issue was that Poland wanted to uh, unlock the recovery funds that it had applied to get from the European Commission. And so it was kind of using this as as leverage to make sure it got those funds, even though the Commission has had a whole lot of complaints about the rule of law in Poland, um, which have made uh, the European Commission kind of reluctant to simply hand that money over. Now, the Commission eventually reached an agreement with Poland on that particular issue, Only to find that Hungary then said that it was going to reject the deal again, probably for the same uh, reason of Hungary wanting to get recovery funds and the European Commission having kind of grave doubts about um, respect for for the rule of law in Hungary. And so Hungary has been kind of cozying up to the Republicans in the US, you know, trying its hardest to complain about the deal and what its effects will be on the Hungarian economy. so we've you know seen some interesting results from that. So uh, the U.S. has actually terminated a U.S.-Hungary tax treaty as punishment for the way Hungary's been behaving, but uh, still Hungary doesn't seem to have have got on board on this. So you, the EU still has a few options if 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 it can't get agreement with Hungary. Uh, you know, one option is to do uh, is to have a kind of a coalition of the willing EU member states and move forward without Hungary, but quite clear that there'll be some legal risks if they do that. And it's possible then that that the whole deal could get overturned uh, by the European Court of Justice for reasons that are probably a bit too complicated to go into here. So, you know, we don't really know where that's going to end up, but it could make it very difficult for the EU as a whole to sign on to the deal. And of course, there's problems in other parts of the world too. So, uh, for example, it's not clear whether the US Congress is going to support the deal. Uh, It's not just Republicans, but also some Democrats who are wavering and saying that, you know, higher tax rates are going to to harm the economy. Now, as you say, the Commission also wants to go beyond the OECD proposals and uh, deliver some further reforms off the back of them. Um, And that would include having an EU-wide single corporate tax rule. In my view, this is a fantastic idea because it was going to lower and simplify the administrative burdens for large firms who operate across different countries within the EU. Um, And it should also help limit some of the profit shifting between EU countries um, to make sure that, uh, you know, there's not a competition for the lowest possible tax rate between different EU jurisdictions. However, this type of uh, proposal has been tried several times in the past and it never gets very far, mostly because of this uh, age-old problem of uh, needing unanimity. So I, I guess we don't know. The Commission obviously thought that if the OECD deal passes, then EU member states might start to see there being more benefits in cooperating with each other rather than competing. Um, but uh, given that we don't even know whether the OEC deal is going to pass now, it seems like uh, you know, that, that may have been too optimistic.
0: Okay, great. Well, thank you for that um, Global Tax Digest sack. John, the final question is for you. It's about the EU's banking union, which was created in response to the 2008 financial crisis, with a view to supervise and regulate banks, particularly in the Eurozone, to try to reduce the possibility of another major banking crisis happening. But the banking union isn't finished. The project has stalled for several years trying to get what's known as the EU deposit insurance scheme over the line. So, John, could you... um, go into a bit more detail about what the banking union would actually do and um, what is the EU deposit insurance scheme?
3: Sure. I'll try and do this in a few minutes, but it's not easy. Um, So the idea behind the banking union is essentially to stop banks that are in financial distress from dragging down their governments and vice versa, and that's particularly important in the eurozone because they share a common currency, and so that makes makes it easier for banking crises in one country to spread to other ones. And and the other aim behind it is to stop borrowing costs for firms from being determined by the member state that they're in. So if you've got um, a government which has loads of debt, it's not the firm's fault that that's happened. And so um, uh, they might have higher interest rates than their competitors. And you can see this happening with Italy and Germany, for example. Italian government debt is quite high. Um, That means that borrowing costs in Italy generally are a bit higher because there's just more risk in the banking system and with governments. And so Italian firms face higher, uh, more credit constraints, basically. In a little bit more detail, just very briefly, in terms of what the banking union's for, it's to essentially ensure that Italy and some other countries that are fairly weak, but Italy is the big one, um, that a banking crisis doesn't spread to the rest of the eurozone. And is the big problem because its government debt is very high. And as we enter this kind of increasing interest rates period, because we've got inflation the ECB is raising interest rates, um, that means that Italian government debt uh, is kind of falling in value. Fewer people want to hold it. And because a lot of Italian banks hold Italian government debt, that's an asset on their balance sheet, and the value of those assets is declining. And so Italian banks' balance sheets are becoming more risky. And so I don't want to be alarmist, we have only seen kind of mild effects so far, but that's in part because the European Central Bank is propping up the price of Italian government bonds. Um, So that's kind of what the the, the banking union is there to do. And the fact that it's not quite complete means that we haven't completely delinked banking systems from governments, and that's a bit of a problem. There have been various measures that have been agreed since the process started about a decade ago. There's been an EU bailout fund, which is largely paid into by banks themselves. Um, there is some bail-in measures where creditors to banks have to take equity stakes or lose their money if the bank fails. Um, there's a common resolution regime for when banks are wound down, um, and the single there's a single supervisor of the biggest banks uh, at the European Central Bank. uh, And that's because national supervisors were seen as a a bit too close to the banks that they were supervising. Um, And as you say, there are still some things to go. And the big one is common deposit insurance across the Eurozone. And that would mean that, um, you know, small depositors like you or me who have less than 100,000 euros in the bank, they should be bailed out. It's critical that they are um, if a bank fails. But if you've got a weak government that can't really do that, then that's bad. And so the idea is that you'd make the whole system safer if you agreed that the European governments as a whole agreed to bail out those smaller creditors.
0: Okay. And then so on to the question which Nicholas in Lamarque asked. What's been the holdup with the deposit insurance scheme? And are we likely to see a such a pot to cover people's savings in the event of a large eurozone bank failure at any stage
3: Uh, okay so why why is why is it failing um well it's it's principally down to politics but i think it's also something to do with where we are now in the kind of monetary policy cycle as well so in terms of the politics germany and other hawks which are often in northern europe they don't want to be on the hook for depositors in italian banks if they fail and they've been saying look you've got to Reduce the risks in the Italian banking system before we're going to do much. Um, in truth, the amount of risk in, in the system has been falling, you know, as measured by the number of loans that businesses, uh, Italian businesses, and households aren't paying back to banks. Um, but you know, there's still a fair amount of a fair amount of risk there. Um, on the Italian side, the, the reason why there hasn't been an agreement is because the quid pro quo for there being deposit insurance where Germany and Northern Hawks are on the hook for Italian banks failing and helping out smaller depositors. The the quid pro quo for that is that the Italians accept that Italian banks are made to stop holding so much Italian government debt and that would be done by new rules. And the reason why Italy is concerned about this is because they worry, not without reason, that this is going to raise their borrowing costs. So that's kind of where we're stuck. Um, And we don't really, we haven't really got a solution to that. And the fact that we're going to have a new uh, right-wing populist government in Italy probably makes the solution to that even harder. Mm -hmm. Um, On the monetary policy side, um, we're seeing... The ECB raising interest rates, inflation is is high. That's already pushing pushing up Italian borrowing costs. So it's going to make it even harder to get to a political agreement on this issue, um, because you know essentially uh, the risks of a crisis in Italy are rising, even though they're not huge at the moment. They are rising, and so for Germany and Uh, other northern European countries, it's more risky to then become on the hook for uh, small-time depositors in Italy.
0: Okay, thank you, John. And thanks as well to Ian and Zach. And this has been the sixth episode of the Ask the CER podcast. Thank you to our listeners and to those who wrote in with questions. Please do keep them coming. Um, Don't forget to sign up to our mailing list so you'll be able to receive our question form but also to follow our podcast on spotify google Podcasts, apple Podcasts, wherever you wherever you listen thanks for now see you next time bye-bye thank you for listening to the cer podcast if you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode then you can find us on twitter at cer underscore eu